How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with being answers. I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture is how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today, our very, very special guest is Frank Schaefer. And Frank is a New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen books, his most recent being his up-and-coming book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, and Save the Planet. How good is that title right there? Frank is a survivor of both polio and an evangelical fundamentalist childhood. He's an acclaimed writer who has overcome dyslexia, a homeschooled and self-taught documentary movie director, a feature film director of four low-budget Hollywood features Frank has described as, quote, pretty terrible. He's also an acclaimed author of fiction and nonfiction. He's an artist with a loyal following of international collectors who own many of his paintings. And Frank has been a frequent guest on The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. He's appeared on Oprah. He's been interviewed by Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air. He's appeared on the Today Show, BBC News, and all of those media appearances have led him to this apex of a moment on The Church Needs Therapy. Frank's a sought-after speaker and has lectured at a wide range of venues from Harvard's Kennedy School to the Hammer Museum at UCLA, to Princeton, to Riverside Church Cathedral, to DePaul University, and also at the Kansas City Public Library. I could go on, but I would prefer him to go on so you can hear his stories and his journey more from him. So Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally today, which is so meaningful, but also with us and the listeners in the Church Needs Therapy community as well. Well, Kevin, it's a real pleasure, and um, I guess I'm sitting north of Boston, and you're somewhere in Hawaii, is that correct? Yeah, if you look out that window, I'm on the 37th floor of a building, and you're looking out at downtown Honolulu at the mountains right here, and if yeah. I pointed this way, then you would see the ocean just if I turned the camera to, so I'm right yeah. on a harbor going into the ocean. Yeah, I know right where you are, so we're, we're really coast to coast here, because I'm looking out at the Merrimack River here that feeds into the Atlantic. And um, the Newburyport community. So we are, uh, we're truly, we spent, I think this is about as far away as two people can get and still be in the continental or USA somehow. Totally. Uh, no, it does, like even Frank and I, for the listeners, were both at an event a few weeks ago in New York City. And when I go to New York from here or go anywhere on the East Coast, it's like international travel. For most people, that's 10, that's 10 hours just in the plane, not including if you're doing layovers. So Exactly. And if I try to come to you in Hawaii, as I did once for a vacation and once speaking, uh, then you realize how far away it is. You know, I, I can, taking off from Boston, I can be in most European airports six hours later, taking off from mm. Boston. I've just changed planes in San Francisco and I'm on the way to you and haven't even started my trip yet. You're, you're, yeah. I mean, no, that's we, a long he, way. 
Absolutely. We can, I mean, I can get to Tahiti. I can get to Tokyo. I can get to all those places quicker than I can getting to the East coast. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of, we're out there <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, the event we were both at in New York, um, was what, a couple weeks ago, and we were in a lot of discussions with a lot of different people on many, many different subjects, um, one of which was a chance for me for a few minutes on the Sunday morning to present a couple details about this new book of mine, uh, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, and um, I think I've sent you a copy, uh, or I should have, but anyway, in any case, we've got, it's not out yet, it's in the bookstores November 2nd, but we can talk about that, but before we do, maybe I should just talk to people who follow you and listen a little bit about my own childhood, uh, which will explain why I really like the title of your podcast, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, let's let's begin there. We're definitely going to get into the book. I have some questions about the big picture stuff in the book. I pulled some great quotes that I think help kind of draw people in even deeper. Yeah. But, you know, you're a best-selling author. A survivor of both polio and a fundamentalist evangelical childhood. Tell right. the people a little bit more, or actually a lot more about those experiences, because if they're not familiar with your personal narrative, your story, your father, and that whole journey, it won't make as much sense your book. Now, when you hear the story, yeah. all of the writing, all of the life you do so, flows so naturally out of that experience. So tell us, tell us that story, which to me is just one of the most fascinating stories. Good. Well, let's see. I'm going to work backwards here. I'm going to be 69 this August. And uh, that's reaching a time of your life when you sort of either you're an idiot or you reflect a little bit on what you've done. It's one or the other. And as you reflect, uh, you begin to really understand why there are some things you regret and are ashamed of. And there are other things you did that you now don't think were the right thing. You know they were. So let me give you something in each category, and then I'm going to tell you a little about my life. Uh, I've spent the last 12 years full-time uh, doing the child care for three of my five grandchildren, along with my wife, Jeannie. And we haven't, haven't divided the work up between her and me as if somehow what I was doing was more important and what she was doing was less. When I say I was doing the child care, I mean uh, hands-on all the time, me personally, loving every moment of it, um, taking care of these three little kids who live across the street from me, born to my son, John, who was in the U.S. Marine Corps, fought twice in Afghanistan, once in Iraq, wow. came back, went to the University of Chicago, did very, very well, graduated, got married, bought a house in my neighborhood. And so had you gone back to my childhood and looked at the way I was raised in a patriarchal fundamentalist Protestant evangelical community, which happened to be in Switzerland because my parents were American missionaries over there. And you fast forwarded to the views I have now of male and female roles, inclusion of non-binary and gay, trans people, the fact that I really regard my role as a nurturer and caregiver of three of my five grandchildren as the primary focus of my life, not a side issue. Um, you, you would not know you're talking about the same person, because if you had gone back to the way I was raised, which was uh, that men are supposed to be in charge, that the biblical model of marriage is patriarchy, 
that uh, females are companions to males, are supposed to obey them, that children need to be disciplined often harshly to kind of break their spirit and make them subservient to the male figure in the household. It's about as far away from the way I am working with my grandchildren as you could get. So when I was born in uh, August 3rd of 1952 in Switzerland, in a Swiss chalet in a little village called Champery, I delivered a home birth at home. My mom and dad had been living in Switzerland since 1947. They went over there as missionaries after the war to work with young people in European bombed out cities. And the reason they settled in Switzerland was because Switzerland had been neutral during the war and was the only country in Europe without its infrastructure totally bombed out of existence. So mm-hmm. dad could get someplace, like he could go to Hamburg, Germany, Paris, France. He could go to Milan, Italy, ministering to young people in various youth organizations. They split with their mission uh, as evangelical Protestants are wont to do. They split and start their own things once in a while, as anybody grown up in that community will know started their own mission called Le Brie Fellowship, L-apostrophe-A-B-R-I, which in French means the shelter. Mm. And this was an outgrowth of my sisters going to the University of Lausanne in the mid-1950s. The work started in 1954, and they would start bringing other students, 18, 19, 20, home for the weekend to meet their parents as a kind of a missionary outreach, a chance to, quote, witness to the lost. And that's how the ministry started. So it evolved into an intentional community with an open home policy. So I grew up stepping over sleeping bags in the hallway, people crashing for the weekend. My parents were very unknown, struggling financially, even though they were in Switzerland, which always sounds very expensive, but, but, and it is, but uh, in their case, this little faith ministry, we didn't eat very much meat, you know, maybe a chicken on the weekend divided <laughs> between my parents and 20 guests, a lot of rice and gravy. Um, <laughs> And then uh, in, in, so that was the ministry I grew up with, very focused on evangelical fundamentalist beliefs. Um, I got polio because when I was two, my parents came home from a missionary furlough on a ship called the Ile de France, which was one of the big ocean liners, and they did not get me vaccinated. They weren't anti-vax, but it was like, oh, well, we'll do it sometime. I got polio. My left leg is atrophied as a result. Parenthetically, by the way, I do not like people who are anti-vaccine because I'm an example of someone who should have had one, mm-hmm. um, and it's a real deal. Then uh, as their work grew, my dad started tape recording lectures, wrote books, wrote books like uh, Escape from Reason, The God Who Is There, who that ra- rapidly became sort of classics in the evangelical literature. So very quickly... His books became bestsellers. He became known as an apologist and intellectual on the the evangelical world. But just just for context for people to know, like Francis, Frank's dad, Francis Schaefer is a name that people know. I just was on the phone with a friend in California right now before we were talking. And I was like, oh, man, I'm about to do this interview and I said, yeah, by, by, with Frank Schaefer. And he made a joke about like Francis Schaefer. I was like, no, that's actually his son. He immediately yeah. knew the historical impact and role that your dad had. So people can't really imagine what that name was and how big it was at, like, when, that, when his, uh, when his work started, beyond started growing. Yeah, I mean, in the 1970s, if you had asked an evangelical, say, going to a Christian school like Wheaton College or Gordon, who the big names in evangelical Christianity were, they would have said Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, and my dad would have been there. Francis Schaeffer was one of them. So 
Um, very child, I was the son of a famous evangelical mega leader. Uh, people were coming to the Debris Fellowship in, from political leaders like the Bush family. Um, President Ford's son, Mike, stayed with us for a year. His wife, uh, Gail, babysat genies and my daughter after I got married. We would, Dad got well enough known so that he was part of that sort of power structure of the evangelical world. And then Roe v. Wade was handed down, the abortion ruling. And, and um, we had made a film series called How Should We Then Live that went with a book about art, culture, literature, Christian apologetics, the Christian answer. The last chapter in that book was on the issue of abortion. And then we made a new series and book series with Dr. C. Everett Koop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, called wow. Whatever happened to the human race? And that most historians, people like Randall Balmer at Dartmouth and others who have written on it, point to that as the beginning of the evangelical wing of the pro-life anti-abortion movement. Wow. So we went from these obscure missionaries to key players in American politics, and then to the merger of evangelicalism and the Republican Party, so that when you fast forward to the storming of the Capitol January 6th, mm. And the impetus that drove those people in there who were doing it in the name of Jesus and busloads of people coming from churches around the country to support Trump and so forth, none of that historically would have been possible without the advent of the evangelical anti-abortion movement becoming the litmus test that kind of drove the energy of all the other parts. So I just want to add two things, and then we can get into other questions. One, what most evangelicals and secular commentators don't realize is at the time we started advocating for an anti-abortion platform for evangelicals, the hardest job we had was not trying to get secular people to agree with us. It was trying to get the pro-choice, I'm going to say it again, evangelical leaders, including Billy Graham, the evangelist, Dr. Criswell, who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, mm. president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and pastor of First Baptist of Dallas to join us in our anti-abortion crusade. They would not. They were pro-choice, openly. Wow. Okay, so it was a weird thing. Think of this for a minute. Ronald Reagan, who legalized abortion in California, switches sides so he can get the vote of the emerging evangelical majority controlling the Republican Party on one hand, but the old towering leaders of the evangelical movement itself, who were ultra-conservative people, Dr. Billy Graham, Criswell, the editorial board of Christianity Today magazine, the flagship magazine of the Billy Graham organization started by Billy, and Wheaton College and all these other places were pro-choice. And they were pro-choice based on their own idea of biblical theology, of love for other people, tolerance, the fact that men had no right very much the same sort of reasons with a few Bible verses thrown in you would have gotten from pro-choice, quote-unquote, liberals. So once we had convinced them to join our fight, um, the switch took place in the late 1970s, the early 1980s, to a place where on one evening, my dad, Francis Schaefer, myself, Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was about to become Surgeon General, Jack Kemp, who was a congressman who became Bob Dole's vice presidential candidate, we were all in the Rayburn building at the Republican Club. We had 50 senators and congressmen there, and we showed them a 90-minute version of the film and then did a Q&A that lasted almost three hours, and nobody wow. left. 
When that was done, the movers and shakers of the Republican Party, led by Jack Kemp, and with our own connection with the Bush family and also Ronald Reagan and the Fords, had essentially gone from, well, abortion isn't our issue, it's a Catholic issue, it's nothing to do with us, to A, it is an evangelical litmus test, B, the Republican Party is basically got their biggest voter block is white evangelicals, and C, we're going to do this as if it's casting concrete, and it's always been this way. We will, we will forget that recently, back in the 70s, Republicans uh, and Democrats had evangelicals voting for either party rather interchangeably. It was not like one all voted for one party. Uh, and secondly, that abortion was suddenly made an issue when it hadn't been. So I was there. You know, I'm not writing about something that I or talking Absolutely. about something that I've heard about. I was in the meetings with Billy Graham at the Mayo Clinic where dad was undergoing cancer therapy and we would meet with Billy three times, tried to talk him into it. I was aware with Dr. Criswell in Dallas when we were saying to him, hey, last time we were in town uh, at a, and, and had this meeting in a huge venue uh, with 20,000 people, you were there on stage with us greeting us, why won't you do it this time? And he said, well, I'm, I, I think abortion should be legal. So I was there and can bear witness to how this all changed. So basically my own family history is that um, in, the, in the mid-1980s when dad died in 1984, I got out of the movement. I was really having a crisis of conscience about how ugly it was, the homophobia, the racism, the fact that really we were just a misogyny movement trying to take women's rights away. We wanted them mm -hmm. back in their home, no career, be mothers, be subservient to men. The package was very, very ugly. So people ask me why I left, and, and I left really for two reasons that may be surprising. Not so much theology, but aesthetics. It's just too ugly to be part of mm. um, if you have any human empathy. Wow. The second reason why is, and this is the surprising one for people, I left because I started comparing the mega evangelical business and the leaders like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson and these others, to my parents' humble authenticity in the little mission I was raised in. It was about a lot of things, but it wasn't about power over others. It wasn't about mm. money. Dad didn't even have a secretary. He worked on the side of his bed on a tea tray in a rocking chair. We didn't own a car. It was genuinely a faith ministry. When he started selling his books, the royalties went back into the ministry. They were able to buy an extra chalet to house some more people in. Nobody was putting any of this in their pockets. When I got into this den of thieves known as big time American Christianity, I was so shocked. <laughs> You know, I was on the 700 Club seven times. I preached from Jerry Falwell's pulpit at Liberty Baptist twice. Wow. I was the keynote speaker at Liberty University once. Mm. I was the keynote speaker at the Southern Baptist Convention one year, filling in for my dad, 23,000 pastors. Okay, wow. so I, I've been there, done that. I was pulling down really big honorariums for speaking before I left. Anything I would write would instantly sell. Dr. Dobson bought... Uh, 150,000 copies in a special edition of a book I wrote called A Time for Anger, gave them away as a fundraising fulfillment. Wow. You know, the, the mantle had passed. So talk about hot, nepotistic, <coughs> young son taking over the father's ministry. I was right there. And so when I walked away from Wait, that, hold on. I, 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 got, I got to interrupt you. I got to interrupt yeah. you once just for the listeners. I want to say two things. One, I, I should have told you this before we started recording. For all kinds of reasons leading up to how my wife and I lead the, the church we're a part of and also this, we've put ourselves in a place where whether it's as we teach, preach, and lead people or in, in these kinds of uh, creative spaces on the podcast, yeah. there's no filters, limits, 
we can mark what we need to on the podcast as explicit, just in case you get excited and we really got to get going. Feel free to just let loose, you know, because I can yeah. always see it right there. And yeah. two, just to catch people up, what Frank's saying is what we see now as the religious right, ask people, what's the problem? Christianity, the right, this fundamentalist power, all of these sort of things that led and were embodied in the storming of the Capitol, the election of Trump. What Frank's saying is he was right there in it. And like the young prince coming up in that kingdom and in that world, being groomed to be one of the power brokers, who is one of the young power brokers. He was in the White House with all of these leaders that basically created what is called the religious right now. So what he's describing is a whole history of where we got to where we are and how he was just sort of in the center of it. So I just kind of wanted to clarify that as we keep going. So please keep going. The nepotism, yeah. the, all this stuff. The whole bit, I get it. So, you know, put it this way. I understand North Korea. You know, you got an epitaph leader and then, you know, the next guy takes over and they always have the same last name and they murder their brothers. In our ministry, after my dad died, my brothers-in-law had a big fighting, falling out who would be in power. Fortunately, thank God I had left by that time. So I wasn't part of it. But I get that. I get it. I get North mm -hmm. Korea and I get evangelicalism. I get the British royal family. You know, you wake mm -hmm. up and you're Prince Charles. You wanted to be an architect. No, no, you're going to be a king. You know, I see all that and I walked away from it. But here's the point I'm trying to make. When you get to my current life as a caregiver of three grandchildren and an author who's just finished a book, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy that I've worked on for five and a half years, almost six years. The perspective it's written from is someone whose own personal journey mirrors the change that I am recommending other people mm -hmm. make. Mm. I'm not simply talking about writing to evangelicals saying, do what I did. Far from it. Uh, I, I'm saying that basically we have an utterly wrong handle on life. And I'll give you one example. I think that back in the day with our anti-abortion movement, we were essentially selling fake family values. Mm. Fake family values. Family values are a very powerful tool. It's like raising money for hungry children. You know, it's good shtick. So you're out there saying, oh, no, we're all about family, we're about love, and we're about togetherness. And now I want to go back and say to me in 1979 or 1980, or sitting down with the Ford family, hey, let's just say for a minute you're right. Let's roll back Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal. Let's just say that was the right thing to do. There's something you need to do first. First of all, you need to change the American tax base so that we can have a real social safety net. For instance, we need to be able to supply anybody who has a child, whether married, pair bonded, single, lesbian, gay, uh, traditional Christian home, doesn't matter, with parental leave for a full year to two years after every child is born with no loss of pay or position in a company by law. Secondly, we need universal health care that is free so that having a child and caring for your children is not only not expensive, it's cared for. Third, we need to have a social safety net that takes care of and provides for women's health, including abortion, free contraceptives. We need to have a change, not only in social policy, but fashion, so that it is just as fashionable and just as cool for males or non-binary people or gay people to take time off and spend time with their kids. We need to fund childcare. We need to revamp the educational system. We need to do these things. Now, once you've done those things and actually provided real choices, you want to talk pro-choice, real choices, 
not just have an abortion or go broke, have an abortion or ruin your life and keep the baby, have an abortion, marry someone you don't want to marry, whatever it may be. Once we provided real choices, now let's talk about this <clears throat> issue. What we did is we came slamming down the pike talking about this issue before any real choices were given anyone. So what I'm calling for in my book is not fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy in the present context. Mm -hmm. I am saying we need to take these, you might say, post-it notes, mm -hmm. these little words, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy, sort of like a Mormon checklist of things to do. <laughs> okay? We need to take that Mormon checklist and say, okay, we need to take back family values Mm. For a progressive point of view, in the same way that my old friends in Santa Monica about 20 years ago hung an American flag out, and I was saying, wow, you got a flag outside your house. There's people pretty far left and progressive. And he said, yeah, my friend Frank said to me, yes, I am sick of the flag having been taken over by the right. Mm. It belongs to us, too. Well, similarly, I am putting a book out there with a cover that screams traditional family values. Mm. And I'm saying they are traditional, but not the way you mean it. Mm -hmm. If you want these family values, here are the things we must do. We mm -hmm. have to really change society. We have to create a movement that is genuinely egalitarian and fair for people who are parents. We've got to understand that we are all caregivers. And in that sense, it has nothing to do with whether you're married or single or childless or have five kids. We are all caregivers because the way we evolved was to be in community and caregiving. That's where we are happy. This has nothing to do with a moral call to do the right thing by women or take care of kids because otherwise they're not. No, no. This is straight up self-interest. You want to have a happy life. You want to live meaningfully. Then you've got to change your idea of success. And it has to stop being about career and money, position and power. And has to start being about connection, care and love, both shared, given and received. If you want to be happy, you have to be a caregiver. That doesn't mean you have to be a parent. Uh, you know, a single gay guy somewhere can still be parenting the people around him or her or they, if they're non-binary, whatever, because our role as caregivers is hardwired into the evolutionary <clears throat> process that we, where we evolved empathy, where we evolved community, the hunter-gatherer society where if you didn't share, you would die because people mm -hmm. wouldn't share with you. We learned all this the hard way. Now you get into let me let me ask yeah. you, um, you if so far it's interesting you've already anticipated a question I was going to ask in a minute and both times you spoke sure. directly to it which I love you have the in your book you say we claim talking about the religious right this movement I was a part of because family values at face value in and of itself it's like who doesn't you know, appreciate family values. What could possibly be wrong with family values? And a big right. part of your book is saying, there's nothing wrong with family values. These are great. But what we're doing is reinterpreting and reimagining what we mean by family and what we mean by value. Yeah. And in, in, in the book, you say, we claimed we were standing up for what we called family values. And you say, or you write, these were cynical, fake family values. What we were really selling was misogyny, pure and simple. Yeah. And I want people to, I want you to speak to that more because I want people to see that here you have this whole evangelical movement which has at its center this idea of family values, Dobson, focus on the family. This is what holds together our structures, family values. Right. How does that version of family values actually traffic in a real sense of misogyny into the lives of 
real people. Well, starting with Dobson, it's 100% patriarchal. <laughs> the model is always a man who's the head of the household going out, working, the sole breadwinner, coming home to an obedient wife who's raising the children. No shared responsibilities. No. Is that, is, is that not what we see in the Gospels with Jesus? Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, if you really want to be brutal about it, you know, from my point of view of someone who came out of the evangelical background, you cannot, you cannot excuse uh, what is in evangelical theology based on the fact that they just have a wrong interpretation of the Bible. No, I'm sorry. Mm. The Bible is patriarchal from the first page to the last. It is rife with this stuff. You either have to stand up and admit it and reject it. And I'm not talking about whether you can be a believer or not. I'm talking about rejecting what is in the Bible that bolsters this idea and say, look, the parts of the Bible that work for people, the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, the stuff that people who are still trying to be Christians want to follow, mm. always seems not coincidentally to jive with one thing, and that is the actual way we evolve. The actual way we evolved is the survival of the friendliest, not the survival mm. of the fittest. All the science has changed on that, which I talk about in the book. Interesting. And the survival of the fittest is not something that is actually now being borne out by today's research. What's being borne out is community, cooperation, and all these other things. So I want to flip it. And I want to say that the parts of the New Testament, for instance, that resonate with us as true and as standards by which if you live, your life will be happier and better actually resonate because that is the way we evolved before there was even spoken or written language in terms of community, hunter-gatherer societies that took care of each other, roles of men and women, cooperation without which we could not survive. The reason the teachings of Jesus look so wise and prophetic, or any teachings for that matter, is only based on one thing. Do they jive with reality or not? Mm. If they jive with reality, and actually, if you live by them, they work, then people get very mystical and say, well, this must be true, must be prophetic, maybe we'll believe some of the more magical stuff that goes with it. Okay, that's a different discussion, and I'm not trying to put anybody down. But let's be honest here for a minute. <clears throat> the parts of the Bible that don't work and have to be rejected, not just soft-pedaled like maybe there's another interpretation of this verse if you read it in Greek, that's an easy way out. Okay, are the parts that actually don't jive with how we evolve. And we all play these games in our various communities. There are evangelicals trying to take another view of, for instance, gay marriage. And they say, well, it just comes down to a few verses in the Bible and they're wrongly interpreted. There are people who are talking about standing up against this patriarchal white middle-class American view of family. And they say, well, but if you, if you, you know, it's only a few verses. Let's be honest. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that gives you a choice to either listen to the parts of the Bible that fit with the way we evolved, which is caring for one another. Love is an actual chemical process that can be borne out and studied. It's real. It's not a sentimental idea. It's the mm -hmm. stuff of which, which we cannot live without. You can have a, you might say, science-based vision of the teachings of Jesus being true, mm -hmm. or you can try to accept the whole thing as a magical document. And that's where it falls apart. And then you spend your life scrambling to say all the anti-gay stuff isn't really anti-gay, it's something else. All the misogyny isn't really there. It's much better to be honest and just say, hey, listen, there are parts of this theology, tradition, cultural tradition that I want to live by. I choose to live by them because they fit the way I really am. They really do work. Okay, so 
Take my own marriage, for instance. I've been married 51 years to Jeannie. I got her pregnant when we were 17 and 18. There are still parts of our marriage that benefit from the fact that I was raised as an evangelical that believed in certain things. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff, though, I had to grow beyond because I had become a world-class asshole by divine right. <laughs> Dude, that's the, every quote I was seriously had to pull from the intro, you always beat me to it. The yeah, quote, by the way, the quote, the quote by divine right. Because, <laughs> and by the way, I was extremely biblically literate. I wasn't misinterpreting some verse that means a different thing in Greek when you read it. It doesn't say, oh yeah, women can preach in church and they're fine to pray in public. No, it told them to shut up and go home. And I wasn't reading a different version that said, if your daughter loses her virginity, you take her to the city gate and stone her to death. That's in there. Mm -hmm. It's not a misinterpretation. This book is full of very, very terrible things at some point. And if you really follow them, you will be a world-class asshole. <laughs> and and that's, that, that's the deal. So let's not, let's not you know, beat around the thing and try to be polite about it. That's the truth. Now, the, the, the great thing is, though, that Evolution has actually programmed us in a way that fits in, and I'm being serious now. I mean, I, mean, I was before too, but and I'm <laughs> being really serious here. Evolution actually programmed us to fit in with the teachings of Jesus on treating others a certain way mm. better, and I mean this, than it programmed us to fit in with this idea that our lives are about our careers. Mm. We are programmed by evolution for community, not for domination of others. And for caring, and in that sense, and I don't use this word in a sort of a gendered way, or you know, I'm not trying to be a smart ass here, but in that sense, we have all been born, male, female, non-binary, gay, straight, heterosexual, they, we, whomever, to be mothers, because we mother each other or we die, in that classic sense of the word mothering, not motherhood, mothering as an activity. So a male, who succeeds in making a community work is mothering those around him as much as a female or non-binary person does. Mm. This has nothing to do with, with bearing children. Um, you know, my son uh, who is married has three kids. Another son is not married. He teaches in a high school. He's a phenomenal teacher. He's been there 30 years. Wow. He is a nurturing caregiver. There are people all over America who owe the fact that they got a good start to him in the same way that they would to a wonderful parent. You know, he's the guy that'll cook you lunch before he tutors you in math because it's easier to teach someone who's not hungry. Okay, this is a real teacher. Okay, now, so mothering is not a female activity. It has nothing to do with gender. It's an activity of caring without condition for others. Funny thing is, it's the only reason the human race has survived this long because we developed in community caring for others. Now, of course, there's very dark sides. We get in a little community and we see others as the enemy and so forth and so on, and that's the tragedy. But what my book is about is really calling people back to a science-based, true vision of life that doesn't lead to, quote, just doing the right thing because somehow, you know, this is the moral thing to do, but caring for one another in a way of in community and in family, real family values that actually leads to happy lives, that, that reduces the statistics on loneliness, uh, suicide, all this other stuff. So I'm hoping that what the book does is not 
um, simply tell a little bit of my own story in terms of caregiving and what I've learned and going from, you know, a world-class asshole by divine right to just being a jerk sometimes, you know, which is a good journey, a good step. I hope it goes further and really opens the door for people who are still trying to live lives of faith as Christians <clears throat> on the one hand, that what they believe is true in a sense they don't understand. And that is following the teachings of Christ are not just true because you accept Jesus as the son of God or whatever it may be, which I don't, by the way. I'm not a Christian in that sense any longer, but let's say I did. <laughs> and then on the other hand, my you know secular counterparts who think more the way I do along atheistic agnostic lines, I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. I'm sort of, I'm, a, I'm somebody who prays, but at the same time, very ambivalent about any of the theology. I think there's a lot of people like that. The book is very much for them, too. So I think a non-binary, unattached, unpair-bonded person can read this book and find themselves in it. And I think a mother of five kids homeschooling, coming out of an evangelical background, can read this book and find herself in it. Because guess what? Whatever our divisions of right and left, there is a human common bond that puts us on the same page as one another, uh, unless, we, unless we are sociopaths and really don't care about anybody. So, you know, that guy hoarding his AR-15 with thousands of rounds of armor-piercing bullets um, and I have a lot in common, even though I don't. Because the fundamental thing is, if, if, if in the end of the day he reaches my age and he realizes what mattered most in life was not his career or money or any of this other stuff, but the fact that he had some loving, meaningful relationships that he found depth of purpose in, he is bonded with your most ardent progressive feminist, let's say, who comes roaring out of the 1970s, denying everything he thinks he believes in and vice versa. But the fact of the matter is, if they have found the truth of community in some way, they actually have something to talk about with each other. They can actually help each other and change each other's minds on certain things. And that's my hope in this book. You know, I'm hoping I, mean, a, I want to share this short story. I want to ask you a question that doesn't just get at what you're talking about in the shift from career, the need for power to moving towards mothering the community and cooperative right. sort of vision of the world. But also I want to ask what is required for people who are oriented to power to let go of in order to get there. So I remember when my first, I have a four year old daughter and a two year old son right now. Mm. And my wife, we're both, we're both pastors. My wife has a private practice. She, uh, she's a marriage and family therapist as well. And from my, from when, when both of my kids were born, I've watched them every day. You know, we trade off, I'm working, you're doing this, then I'm with the kids, then we're all together. We've always had a system like that. And I can remember a story when my first daughter was probably, you know, eight, nine months old. We're in our old, like we don't have a yard anymore, our old front yard. And we're just in the hose. She's just rolling around on the ground, middle of the day, you know, Hawaii weather, just an amazing moment. And I remember having this thought of while it was happening, I can hear this voice, right? This sort of contraction of my ego saying, there's people who are working harder, getting ahead, building their churches, you know, in the publishing industry, building a platform, sure. you know, getting a bigger following, meeting the right people, manipulating to get ahead, climbing the ladder, doing all those things that I'm very aware of. And even when I was 17 or 18, knew I wanted nothing to do with in my life. And I was trying to get out of a life that was dominated by those things, not growing up in the church. Right. I remember sitting there, and you can feel when your mind's doing that, you're not, you cannot be fully present, engaged, and filled with joy in the moment in this simple act of mothering, as you would say, and being present to my child. Because 
my presence with her is not productive in that right. system. In there's no platform, that, and if anything, it's taking away from my ability to build a platform because I'm yeah. not doing anything. I'm not. My church isn't grinding harder to get bigger and to you know one day I can talk to Frank Schaefer, you know, because I have a big platform or whatever. Right. And I, but I remember in that moment being fully aware of all of that and just having this moment of surrender, letting it be what it is, returning to my daughter with tears in my eyes, and we just continue to go in the hose. Because I, that part of us that believes that's career, that thing is going to save us, I don't actually believe that. So when right. I, in the moment, return, now I'm just present and I'm engaged and there's love and it's just me and her and that's all there is. Mm. I tell you that story because when you have people who are oriented to power, believing the career is what's going to make everything click for me, you know, some whatever. What is well, required? You know, you've made that shift and you're like, what do you have to let go of? What do you have to say no to in order to say yes to that form of quiet and powerful mothering and caregiving? You know, what is so hard about making that shift for people that people would have to embrace in order to make that move? Well, I'll start with the last part of your question. What is so hard? You know, you are swimming against not the stream, but a tsunami. Mm. of materialistic consumerism that basically with every waking breath is telling you you are a fool and missing the boat unless you're doing the next cool thing. Mm. So you're not on your own making this decision. You are on a freight train hurtling through a tunnel with millions of other people packed into the freight car with you, destination unknown, and every single one of them around you seems to be bent on a very opposite conviction. Now you're lucky, Kevin, because you're thinking about these things at the age when I should have been thinking about these things, but instead was spending six months of the year away from my small children who were about the age as your kids are now and a little older, doing all these important speaking engagements. One of the great things that happened to me when I got out of the big time evangelical world is I actually had more time for the family values we had been preaching, but not doing. There are no more bereft children than the children of Christian leaders. You know, when I wrote my book, uh, uh, Crazy for God, a memoir that did a lot of business and got some notice with Terry Gross and other people, I got a handwritten note from one of Billy Graham's daughters wow. saying, you've told the truth about our life. And wow. she signed it, Ruth, and then she put a PS. She says, we were sacrificial lambs. Wow. Okay, so this was really unexpected. Now, I knew the Graham family, so I don't mean unexpected to hear from that, but I didn't know that would be her reaction. Wow. The fact of the matter is, you know, nobody sacrifices their kids more than people who are doing God's work because they're convinced that not only are they getting ahead and they're striving and the ego is fed, you're becoming the big leader or the big power, church pastor or whatever. On top of that, you can think to yourself, yeah, but this is God's work. Mm -hmm. We're making some sacrifices. And you get things like the China, China Inland Mission that my mom was born into. Her two sisters were destroyed and had destroyed lives. They were dumped in boarding schools for their entire lives from birth until they were teenagers. While their parents were missionaries, they saw them once a year for two weeks. Wow. And the path of bitterness that came out of that while their parents did God's work. Okay, now that's an extreme. Okay, oh, so the yeah, first thing yeah. is, I would tell you, Kevin, you're very lucky that you're having sane thoughts now <laughs> while you can still do something about it. 
I was lucky in that I, and fortunate in that I um, got out of the evangelical movement soon enough so that I started making these shitty crap, secular movies in Hollywood. <laughs> Unlike the whole evangelical shtick where I'd go out speaking, I would bring my kids to the set. We lived in South Africa for a year while we made a, a, an action picture out there. I brought them all with me, took them out of schools. I had seen the light by that time in terms of family times together. So they have all these memories of being, you know, their educations were interrupted and everything was a mess. <clears throat> but I had the good sense <clears throat> to stop compartmentalizing. But I was still halfway to the divine right of assholeness at the same time. I was still on a learning curve, but at least that began to fall into place. I didn't have this thing that I'm doing the Lord's work, and so it's all worth it. And, you know, I began to be less of a patriarchal dominating kind of person. That gradually started to change. Mm. All right, where I really see it clearly, and I write about it in my book, is the difference in the way that I give undivided attention without um, busyness and multitasking to my Mm. grandchildren. And now I look back and I realize that it's not just that I wish I had been that way with my children, but that um, I'm so much happier for that. Mm. Because at this time of life, there's so much I've forgotten about moments of quote unquote achievement. Like at the time I thought, you know, you get a book published and so this big moment and so forth and so on. All of that is like faded to dust. What's very vivid in my mind are the things that I remember doing with my kids that work. And most importantly, day to day with these grandchildren now. Mm -hmm. And like I say, again, it's not a sort of moral decision about what is is better. It, It is simply realizing what actually matters and makes one happy. And then the weird thing is, is that it actually fits in with all the studies and the science about what makes one happy, which is not lonely pursuit of greatness in some field, but really is this kind of bonded connection. So that, for instance, gay adoptive parents, a gay man who adopts a child young, and all the research now on this is very conclusive and spends not just quality time, you know, visits as a caregiver, but actually bonds in the same way as a biological parent. In other words, full time, all the time with that child. The brainwave activity, the, all the neurotransmitters, as well as the hormonal and chemical tests have exactly the same levels that can be measured in a mother with a newborn baby who is breastfeeding the child. Wow. And this is a gay adoptive parent. So the funny thing is our brains actually hunger for love and reward it with this massive giving back to parenting, whether that's biological parenting, adopting, or even parenting relationship as, say, in the teacher-student relationship or whatever it may be. We are wired to experience this, whereas we are not wired to get joy out of sitting in a boardroom. Mm. We are not wired to get joy out of the fact that instead of writing a book that sold 10,000 copies, I do these seven clever things and now I've sold 100,000 copies. There's literally, there's a flash of reward and then it is absolutely gone. And then when you look at at the actuarial tables of longevity and you realize that like the Berlin study I cite in my book here, just to take one example that this is reality we're talking about, not Mm -hmm. fantasy or, uh, you know, romantic ideas about the ideal life. The single greatest predictor of longevity in elderly people that the Berlin study showed absolutely conclusively done over a 19-year period was not whether you smoked or not or obesity. It was whether as a grandparent you were doing regular to full-time care of grandchildren. Wow. 
the predictor was greater for that grandparent to live longer, five to seven years longer, than even those who smoked and didn't smoke. Why? Not because God's rewarding you for caring for kids, but your entire evolutionary process has geared everything that makes your life feel meaningful and worthwhile to caregiving, not elder hostel cruises to go see something and whatever, and you feel alive for a minute because you're in a swimming pool with 50 other people who look like you, you know, on, a, <laughs> on the deck of some shitty boat. I'm talking about the meaning that comes out of caring for a grandchild or any child and the, 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 the actual physiological mental rewards, whether it's Alzheimer's or any of these other things. Conversely, in our crazy, stupid, dumb culture where we segregate according to age, and all these kids are off in some daycare center, and their grandparents are holed up in an elder care place where, or <clears throat> if they're a little more money, a uh, retirement community where you don't even allow to live there if, 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 you, if you're under 55, this is supposed to work for you, flies against everything that our evolutionary biology geared us to be doing. So that you can just take this as an absolute rule. The more giving and more connected your life is, the longer you will live, the happier you will be. That's it, for serious. This is what the science is telling you and my book is all about. The less connected your life is. So the executive who thinks he's made it because now he's in the boardroom or the woman who thinks she's made it because now she's in the boardroom, who has damaged the connections with the people he or she actually care most about, mm. has literally shot themselves in the head. Mm. Their life will be shorter. They will be less happy. They are less connected and they are going to be very lonely at big chunks of their life because you're, you're burning bridges that can't be built any other way. There are, new old, there are no new old friends. Let me put it that way. Okay? So either you carry this through your life with you, or you keep burning bridges while you go off and do this big next cool thing. So this, you know, the fact of the matter is, when you look at caregiving, when you look at family, when you look at child care and all these other things, we ought to be living in a society in which male, female, non-binary, gay, straight roles are absolutely interchangeable. We ought to be living in a culture where it is totally normal to stay home with any child for the first four years of their life until they get to preschool age, <clears throat> that one or the other parent always are swapping off. This is the way everybody does it. The whole tax system is geared to this. People who stay home with a child draw full social security benefits, whether they've worked outside the home or not. Everything is geared towards this. You would have a much happier society. You would have a much more balanced society. You would have far less suicide. You would have far less pathology of all kinds. So it has nothing to do with women should stay home with their kids, men should go to work, or let's do this, whatever. It's that the aim of our culture to succeed is geared to only one thing now, shareholder profits. Mm. It's not geared to happiness. It's not geared to longevity. It's not geared to mental and physical health. It is geared to shareholder profits. They are the only people that count in this spectrum. Mm -hmm. So that, for instance, I quote columns in my book of some, a woman who's a lawyer writing about how she has a meaningful career and she's having to make all these decisions. But the first thing she's got to say in the column, or he, if it's a man, is that, but I have a meaningful career and so forth, I'm balancing it all together, as if somehow you have to justify yourself on the basis of career for anybody to take you seriously. How about instead you start a column saying, I have a meaningful relationship. 
Mm. My life is geared to that. Actually, my work is neither here nor there. It's a means of earning my living. I don't give a shit about that. What I care about is this family. Now, that, I'm not calling for that for male, female, non-binary gay people as if they're separate entities. This is what we all share. Our entire biological history is geared to taking huge benefit from the experience of love and all the chemicals that that releases and the hormones and everything else in all areas of life. There's nothing in there geared to achievement as it is sold to us by corporate America, nothing. So our entire university system, the whole thing we prepare for educationally, everything you were pushed to do is totally wrong. The relationships matter, the education comes second. The relationships matter, the career comes second. And so when it comes to caregiving, whether you're a parent or whether you don't have children, has nothing to do with it. Anybody reads my book who's a non-binary person, unattached, unpair-bonded, never plans to having a kid, will get as much out of my book in terms of their relationships they do have as a mother of five children who's expecting a sex, living on some homeschool compound, you know, on a Amish farm somewhere. This book's for both. You know, so you were talking about your, your wife and the work she does. I mean, I know this sounds very self-serving, but I hope I've written a book that'll be very useful to her work and be something she can hand people and say, hey, listen, you know, before we start, read this and then let's have a discussion. I don't agree with everything he says, but there's something here you really need to think about because I think I've written a book that is actually going to solve a lot of relationship problems in terms of realigning our priorities towards others rather than always looking in my achievement, what I've done and so forth and so on. Yeah, and no, there's so, there's, there's, Oh, even from my question about being with my kids till now, there's so much of what you're saying that speaks so deeply. I think obviously to the shift that we would both love to see happen on a broader cultural level, but even yeah. things I've embraced in my own path because I've known those things. I'm like my wife and I, the decisions we've made, the decisions I've made personally to be as present to my kids as possible. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't going to do for me what other things will. But I know when you talk about, well, the way of Jesus, the, the valuable part of it is insofar as it's actually aligned yes. with the reality that leads us to, to give life and also experience the depth of life for ourselves. And that's a fascinating thing about, you know, everything you're describing in your book is like, regardless of how you organize the world metaphysically, what you're describing, as you know, is that beautiful countercultural sort of subversive yes. way of Jesus, a path that actually leads to life, regardless of what anybody believes about him or not. Yeah, and I, and, and, and I would just interject saying, whoever you think Jesus was, the fact of the matter that the very biological fabric of your inner being is borne out by those teachings is why mm -hmm. they are still around. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody, nobody said these were prophetic and followed them and were willing to be martyred for this because it didn't work when you live by them. They, mm. you know, which is another way of telling you as a younger father from an older guy who's kind of done the arc here and is closing in on the end, I can promise you um, that the decisions you were making to be fully present for your children as a male in a, in a culture built by shareholder interests, mm -hmm. you will never regret that. Everything else you do, you may, have, you may have regrets about. You may look back and say, oh, I wish I'd done that. I went, wish I'd done that. <clears throat> you know, I have many regrets in my life. I talk in my book about the fact that I've been suicidal at times mm -hmm. and have been, gotten there because of following this kind of patriarchal imposition, which is a very unhappy place as a human being to be 
because we're not built for this, dominating others like this. You know, no, nobody, unless you're, a, unless you're a sociopath, nobody enjoys the role of being the bully. Mm-hmm. Who wants to be that guy? Um, but the fact is, you know, as I look back, I literally can't think of one instance where I regret taking time with my grandchildren, let's say, over and above some hot, new, whatever that day's thing is. Yeah, I, I, just, I just never go there. And it isn't a question of principle or I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm literally just talking about selfishly what gives me joy. Sure. And I can assure you that you'll find the same thing as time goes by. Yeah. You know, as we wrap up, let me ask you this question. As a person who's bit gone in and through and come up within this sort of fundamentalist evangelical machine, you know, that in ways most people couldn't even fathom. Right. And w- would you say if people are interested, you talked about that journey most specifically in Crazy for God? Yeah. I mean, Crazy for God is a memoir in which I go from my childhood through <clears throat> to the to uh, about 15 years ago, I think is when I wrote it. But I got to tell you, I recapped a lot of this, uh, it's quite a bit of this in the new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the mm. Planet, Be Happy. I wasn't going to do it, but I had a mention in the book in passing about my childhood. Mm-hmm. And my editor, who knew nothing about me before she bought this book, by the way, uh, wow. somebody who came fresh to my thing said, oh, wow, this is really interesting. You've got to contextualize everything else you're saying. It'll be a better book. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. tell me, please. I don't have to go there again and tell my whole story about <laughs> this background. So I rewrote the introduction and make some allusion to it. But actually, it's a very good backdrop because, look, if you're calling other people to change and yet there's no evidence that you've changed some things mm-hmm. yourself, it's not a very good mix. So by going back and just saying, look, I was really wrong about this, 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 and this, and I changed my mind. Then if you call people to have less of a corporate vision of their own lives, it, okay, it's a different journey than mine, but it's from a guy who's been willing to put his money where his mouth is in his own area. And I'm calling people to, to, to change. So, you know, in a way I'm calling a Jeff Bezos or one of those guys to Give, you know, give your money away, step down, get the hell out of this thing while you still can. Concentrate on the people around you and stop trying to be so fucking cool <laughs> because it's not going to help you. You're not going anywhere with this. Mm. Listen to yeah. me. Yeah, and if he said to me, hey, look at all I'm giving up, I say, yeah, you know what? It's, uh, I was never going to be a, a, a zillionaire, but, but you know, I was the next Ralph Reed. We were making presidents mm. and I walked away from that. You can too. That's so crazy. I think by telling a little of my story, I help people, you know, step up and maybe really take a look at their own lives and make some radical changes. That's my hope. So good. Yeah. And I think that the uh, interesting evidence to what you're saying is it's just one thing I've, I've observed and paid attention to over the years and where you look at film, art, history, the people who are the oftentimes culturally the most innovative, the most singularly obsessed on that one thing where they do, they might have some cultural breakthroughs. They might have this moment. They have all this power. And I'm like, and there's always so much relational carnage behind them. Like the person who is singularly obsessed because of their need for power, success or whatever it is. I'm like, very rarely do you see them in a thriving partnership very rarely do you see that deep sort of i've been present with my children along the way you know so yeah or even present with the person you're in love with exactly i mean these are people who you know basically to be most consistent to the corporate american vision of success okay if you really be consistent you have to become a sociopath (laughs) you have to kill feelings of empathy and love in yourself period 
Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, if you're going to really follow the path of Ayn Rand and libertarians and all these cool people doing their little startups in California, if you really run that out to the end, you are really, really, really going to have to kiss goodbye your humanity and choose the path of the sociopath every single time. Now, I'm not saying they all do. Thank God some of them don't, because we're not all hopefully that consistent, some vision, especially bad ones. But that said, seriously, that way lies real soul death for yourself and those around you. And at that point, you know, if you wind up being Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, okay, I'm not actually, they were pretty decent people in their own ways, but um, that's one thing. But if all you got is a shitload of money and your name on some company like Google is one of the first 12 in, so you got this gadillions of dollars. Um, the only real question history is going to ask is, how did you intru- treat the pregnant woman who wanted to take three years off to raise her child and then came back and found her job was gone because you jerks read that as some sort of weakness instead of helping her? That's what you're going to be remembered for. Mm-hmm. And God help you when, with a relationship with your own kids if you were always so busy, and so on and so on. I mean, really, you know, the vision uh, that the, the, the successful people running companies like Google, Facebook, and so forth, they risk having their lives add up to literally a bucket of smoldering ashes. Because if they follow that dream as the big cool thing to do and forget the stuff we're talking about and that I'm talking about in my book, it isn't the world around them only that will pay, which it does because they're movers and shakers. But the, the real uh, victim is going to be themselves and those around them. And by the time they wake up to what they did with their lives, which was nothing more than make a bucket of money and throw their weight around, it's too late. So um, if, if nothing else, hopefully my book will help change some lives for the better in that if I, you know, if I could get this book to people early in their relationships or as young parents or as people thinking of becoming parents, anyone going into any kind of pair-bonded relationship, whether it's gay, straight, non-binary, whatever, um, I can do them an incredible service because I can say, look, I have tried these various paths. Here's how they wound up. Mm-hmm. I promise you, not only does this work, but I can back it up with the science of connection and empathy. There are reasons we experience love as the single greatest reward that all our neurotransmitters give us. And it has nothing to do with profit margins or whether your startup uh, you know, go, goes on, on the market and, and you know, your first stock offering is a big deal. This is absolute bullshit. And if that's really where you're placing your emphasis, you are fucking doomed. And that's really something that needs to be said because you take my voice. How many people are saying what I'm saying right now compared to the men, the people at Harvard Business School and all these other asshole factories? <laughs> they are turning out people who are destroying their lives and everyone around them. Mm. And it is, it's really time that people read the book that I'm, I've written here and take this stuff to heart because <clears throat> they are going to suffer because of it. Mm-hmm. It's a really yeah. empty path that Harvard Business School and these other people advocate. It's bullshit. <laughs> oh man, we uh, this has been one of the most interesting podcasts because you take a young man who grows up in and through this fundamentalist evangelical machine, who is now an atheist who kind of believes in God, who's calling people back to the connection, the compassion, the empathy, empathy, the real seeing and mothering and nurturing of each other that I believe is at the heart of the vision of Jesus. What an amazing story. What an amazing time, Frank. I'm so grateful for you taking this. Everybody, 
who's listening in, Frank Schaefer's newest book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. How could you not want these things to be a part of your life? And I hope from this experience you see Frank as a very, very credible, grounded, loving guide who can help show you this path towards this better way of living for all of us, for the planet, for everything. So Frank, I look forward to the day our paths cross again. And uh, until that time. Yeah, Kevin, come back. Come back east sometime if you if you can endure the plane travel, come back. Yeah, next time, next time, next time I have a desire for a 10 hour flight, I'm gonna gonna hit you up and we'll figure something out. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, actually, forget that. Stay with your kids. Don't travel. Thank you. (laughs) Bye bye. Thanks, Frank. Thanks.